All right, let's talk about Paradise Lost. Uh, Paradise Lost is an epic, and epic is one of the oldest genres in literature. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey are both epics. Uh, Virgil's Aeneid is an epic. And uh, Milton is borrowing the conventions of the epic, as we will see as we go through it. But he has a very different kind of story to tell than you usually get in an epic. Usually it centers around a hero like Achilles or uh, Odysseus or Aeneas and their adventures. Uh, This one is a biblical story, and uh, the hero of the the book will, uh, well, we'll see how that emerges. But he starts this epic very much like the uh, classical epics do, most of them start off, they invoke the muse. The, Homer says, sing muse of, of uh, the anger of Achilles, uh, sing of the wiles of Odysseus. Virgil's Aeneid starts out, I sing of arms and of a man. And this one, the muse that Milton is addressing is the Holy Spirit. So already you can see how he's blending a a classical form with a Christian subject matter. So let's look at the opening sentence here of Paradise Lost. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat Sing, heavenly muse. So we'll stop. The sentence isn't over, but let's stop there. So his subject is the first disobedience of man, the fall of, this is, you know, the title, Paradise Lost. How was Paradise Lost? How did man fall and lose Eden? And he asked the heavenly muse to guide him, the heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai, that's Sinai, that's the mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed, he's talking about Moses, in the beginning, how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. So Moses, by tradition, is the the author of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, so he was the author of Genesis. Uh, so he's Milton is placing himself as a uh, as being inspired by the same. Spirit of God that inspired Moses. He goes on, Or if Sion Hill delight thee more, and Siloza's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song, that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian mount, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. So he has an alternative. He says we we could have Sinai or we could have Sion. Well, Sion or Zion, Mount Zion, is in the biblical tradition a a mount of poetic inspiration for uh, David and his psalms. And here we get, even just this early, we get this sense of the the range of reference that Milton uses. I I think... Especially for modern audiences, they really need the footnotes because Milton had read everything and he references seemingly everything in the poem. So he all of these biblical allusions and classical allusions, he's kind of encompassing everything in this book. Um, so he says that, uh, go on, oh, chief, and chiefly thou, O spirit, 
that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me, for thou knowest, thou from the first was present. So now he's talking to the, the Spirit of God. He wants direct inspiration. And thou from the first was present, the moment of creation. And with mighty wings outspread, dove-like, satst brooding on the vast abyss, and madest it pregnant. Just look at those last three lines and some of the things Milton's doing with the poetry here. Uh, line 20, with mighty wings outspread, and that's an enjammed line. It doesn't end there. The, the sense of the sentence runs on to the next line, and you're kind of expecting mighty wings outspread, dove-like. Oh, well, wait, That's we don't think of doves as mighty wings outspread. That would be like an eagle or a falcon or a hawk or something. Uh, but it switches. It goes back, dove-like. Satst brooding on the vast abyss. Uh, brooding is a double meaning there. It can mean to, to think, uh, but also it's literally what a, a bird does on a nest, brooding, uh, incubating things on the vast abyss. And madest it pregnant. All right, now that's, brooding is what the the mother bird does. Making something pregnant is what the, the daddy bird does. So the spirit here that he's invoking is full of these contradictory paradoxical elements. Vast wings outspread and dove-like. It sits brooding and it makes pregnant. It, it encompasses all of these contradictions. Uh, but that's the, the spirit that he's calling on that was there at the moment of creation. He says, what, is me, what in me is dark, illumine. What is low, raise and support, that to the height of this great argument I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. So Milton tells us quite explicitly what the agenda is for his poem. He wants to assert eternal providence now, providence is the idea that everything works out according to God's plan, that though it might seem, things may seem bad, uh, ultimately God weaves them into his purposes, that there's a providence. Uh, there, you know, it's, it's the idea that Hamlet had when he says there's a divinity that shapes our ends. That's the idea of providence. And then to justify the ways of God to men now, that's interesting because it implies that those ways need some justification. What is it, and we're going to see, what is it that Milton is justifying, and in what ways does God need justification? Uh, he's going to help men understand how God works. It's a fairly ambitious agenda for a poem, but I, I think Milton may be up to it. So then, having this this very epic introduction, he talks about, the uh, you know he says well where are we going to go well who who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden well it was the infernal serpent and what happened to him and here he talks about how he was thrown out of heaven uh, and look look at uh, line forty four and again notice the enjambments he uses here him that is Satan the Almighty Power hurled headlong flaming through the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in antimantine chains and penal fire who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. Now, 
notice those enjambments come at the end of you know, the end of the lines, and each time you have a potentially complete sentence that goes on, hurled headlong from the eternal ethereal sky with hideous com- ruin and combustion down could be a period goes on to bottomless perdition there to dwell could be at the end but it goes on in adamantine chains and penal fire that could be the end but it goes on who durst defy the omnipotent to arm so the very form of the lines is suggesting this long infinite infinitely prolonged fall of satan into hell he's been cast down uh, into the the fires of hell because he defied and fought against god so we pick up, uh, and this is a, a standard uh, feature in the epic, that they begin in medias res, that is, in the middle of things. Uh, they don't, the story doesn't start at the beginning, it starts kind of in the middle, and later in the middle of the epic you get some flashbacks that tell you what happened earlier. And that's what happens here. Later, we're going to hear the story about how Satan's rebellion against God went. Uh, But now we're kind of thrust into the middle of the action, and uh, it's all happened, and Satan is there uh, uh, on the burning lake of fire. We have uh, line 80. Uh, There's Beelzebub, uh, to whom the arch enemy and thence in heaven called Satan, with bold words breaking the horrid silence, thus began. So here are Satan and Beelzebub, his, his uh, second in command. And Satan turns over. He's been, you know, been cast down. He's been unconscious. He turns over and sees Beelzebub floating in the lake of fire next to him and says, If thou beest he, but oh, how fallen, how changed from him whom in the happy realms of light, clothed with transcendent brightness, did it outshine myriads, though bright. So he turns over, is that you? Man, you've really fallen. You used to be this bright angel, and now you've fallen this low. You've you've changed. And Satan points out that their defeat proves the strength of God. He says, so much the stronger proved he with his thunder. The the devils never name God. It's always an indirect pronouns or other titles they give him, but they never call him God. He with his thunder... And till then, who knew the force of those dire arms? Yet not for those, nor with what that potent victor in his rage else can inflict, do I repent or change, though changed in outward luster, that fixed mind and high disdain from sense of injured merit, that which the mightiest raised me to contend, and to the fierce contention brought along innumerable force of spirits armed that durst dislike his reign and me preferring. So the the sentences in Milton are very long and very complex. It helps a lot to read them out loud. But the thing I want to point out here is that he's he's admitting that God is throwing him down, but is he doesn't accept it as a he accepts it only as a physical defeat not a moral one he says i will not repent or change uh satan does not like change as we'll see uh, line 105 what though the field be lost all is not lost the unconquerable will and study of revenge immortal hate and courage never to submit or yield and what else and, and what is else not to be overcome? So 
he has this he's kind of very defiant in his defeat um and he's saying that uh, he, he, the field may be lost but the battle's not over um and he already has a kind of a, a plan forming in his mind. He says, line 120, We may, with more successful hope, resolve to wage by force or guile eternal war, irreconcilable to our grand foe, who now triumphs and in the excess of joy soul reigning holds the tyranny of heaven. So he's still, we, we can make a plan by, by force or by guile. We can have an eternal war. And then the, the narrator comments on Satan. He says, So spake the apostate angel, though in pain, vaunting aloud, but racked with deep despair. And I want you to think about the picture of Satan that is presented here. It's very heroic. He's got these epic, grand speeches uh, and that speech, you know, what though the field be lost, that sound, you know, if you took that out of context and you didn't know who was saying that, uh, you would think that was a wonderful, stirring speech. Uh, it's interesting to think about why Milton does that, why he creates Satan in this way. And look how Beelzebub responds to him around line 140. He, he says, For the mind and spirit remains invincible, and vigor soon returns. Again, we, we've been knocked down, but we are, our minds and spirits are invincible. And he acknowledged, you know, his, his conqueror. Again, they never call him God. He's the conqueror, uh, whom I now of force believe almighty, since no less than such could have o'erpowered such force as ours. He says, well, I guess God is almighty, or he couldn't have beaten us. And uh, it says around line 153, what can it then avail? though yet we feel strength undiminished or eternal being to undergo eternal punishment. Uh, again, with strength undiminished, even if they're being punished, well, they can, they can heroically endure that. And Satan responds, line 160, to do aught good will never be our task, but ever to do ill our sole delight, as being contrary to his high will whom we resist. If then his providence out of our evil, seek to bring forth good, our labor must be to pervert that end, and out of good still to find means of evil, which oftentimes may succeed, as so perhaps shall grieve him, if I fail not, and disturb his inmost counsels from their destined aim. So there's this, uh, again, this is less heroic, but you still see the the determination of Satan here and his opposition. Well, we may not be able to conquer God, but we can frustrate him. We can turn his plans uh, to evil, uh, and all we, we will dedicate ourselves to doing that. Again, this eternal war that he's seeing between himself and God. But then he tells uh, Beelzebub that we, we need to get to yon dreary plain. They're in the lake of fire. They need to get to the land. And we did describe them uh, Satan on the, the flaming uh, lake of fire. Uh, this is around line 193. With head uplift above the wave and eyes that sparkling blazed, his other part besides, prone on the flood, extended, long and large, lay floating many a rood in bulk as huge as whom the fables 
name of monstrous size, Titanian or earthborn, that warred on Jove, Briaros or Typhon, whom the den by ancient Tarsus held, or that sea beast, Leviathan, which God of all his works created hugest that swim the ocean stream, him haply slumbering on the Norway foam, the pilot of some small night-foundered skiff, deeming some island, oft, as seamen tell, with fixed anchor in his scaly rind, moors by his side under the lee, while night invests the sea, and wished morn delays. Now this is the first example in Paradise Lost, and there will be a lot of them, of the epic simile. And remember that an epic simile is not just a simple comparison, it's an extended comparison. It tells a little story. And this is actually a double epic simile, as Milton quite often does. So in two ways he describes Satan's hugeness here. He was huge as Titanian, one of the Titans. Now the Titans in classical mythology were uh, uh, warred with Jove, Jupiter, who was the king of the gods. They were the older generation and uh, Jupiter, uh, Jove, was the upstart that they were fighting against. Uh, it's very interesting that that kind of uh, flips the, the, in some ways, flips the roles of Satan and God here. But then the second one, that's a classical reference, the second one is a biblical reference. It's so often Milton kind of combines those things. Leviathan, this is mentioned in the book of Job. The Leviathan is the great sea monster. And then it goes from talking about just the hugeness, and it tells this little story that the Leviathan is slumbering on the Norway foam, and the pilot of a ship drops anchor, thinking that it's an island, and with the fixed anchor in his scaly rind, he's passing the night there. And that's the end of the story, but there's a suggestion, well, what's going to happen in the morning when Leviathan wakes up, well, it's going to pull, it's going to destroy the ship, pull it down into the sea, but, you know, the anchors in his scaly rind. And that becomes an image of Satan too. Satan is deceitful. You think that it's a safe harbor, he's, but it's not. It's a dangerous place to put your trust in Satan. And then look at the comment that the narrator makes at line 210. Nor ever thence had, he's talking about Satan, nor ever thence had risen or heaved his head, but that the will of and high permission of the all-ruling heaven left him at large to his own dark designs. Now, it seems like, again, another, another one of these wonderful enjambments, the, the, uh, the will and high permission of all-ruling heaven left him at large. It sounds for a minute like it's talking about predestination, that God determined everything. But no, God left him at large. He couldn't have raised his head if God didn't allow it. Now, God didn't cause it, but he's allowing it. And that that, that paradox of uh, predestination and free will will be an important theme throughout Paradise Lost. And the narrator very subtly introduces it right here. And Satan and Beelzebub get to the land, and Satan has another one of the, a, a big rousing speech all around line 250. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors, hail, infernal world. And thou, profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself 
can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he who, whom thunder hath made greater? Here, at least, we shall be free. The Almighty has not built here, for his envy will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And again, look at the way that Milton could very easily have made Satan a a kind of an an evil, sniveling, mustache-twirling villain here, but he doesn't. He makes him an heroic figure. And again, a lot of those lines taken out of place, uh, you would think that some epic hero saying them. Uh, you know, here at least we shall be free. Um, and that line, you know, the mind is its own place and can it, of it and in itself make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. If you remember in Dr. Faustus, Faust, the Mephistopheles says something very similar, that he, he, wherever he is, is hell. Uh, and Satan here is taking that a step further. He's saying that both hell and heaven are internal psychological states. It's not where you, where you physically are. It's where your mind, where your spirit is, that's important. Um, which seems like a you know a wonderful sentiment, and very disturbing that it's being given to somebody who we know is the enemy of mankind. And uh, notice around line three hundred two, we get another of these extended epic similes. This one is describing all of the the legions of fallen angels on the lake of fire. Um, his legions, angel forms who lay entranced, thick as autumnal leaves that strew the brooks in Vallambrosa with the Arturian shades high overarched in bower. So this is another double epic simile. The first one is, it's like the leaves in Italy. And Milton had actually lived in Italy for a time, so this was something he knew about. Uh, so it, it's like the, the leaves that fall on the, the, the stream, on the river. Uh, or scattered sedge afloat when the fierce winds, Orion armed, hath vexed the Red Sea coast, whose waves o'erthrew Bucyrus and his Memphian chivalry, while with perfidious hatred they pursued the sojourners of Goshen, who beheld from the safe shore their floating carcasses and broken chariot wheels. So, again, we get a biblical reference put in here. Uh, It's the Red Sea, the story of the Red Sea. Remember, Moses and the people of Israel are leaving Egypt, and the Pharaoh follows them across the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea so that the Israelites can leave. They get through and then when the the Egyptians pursue them, the Red Sea collapses back and it kills all of them. So that's a really interesting image here, right? That's the this is an image of the fallen angels defeated. They are the Pharaoh's dead soldiers uh, floating there on the on the water. Um, but then it also has that image of it. They're just the beautiful fall leaves, and how lovely it looks when the stream is just covered with leaves. Um, very often Milton would do this a lot. You know, or is one of Milton's favorite words. He, he sees these alternatives. You can look at it this way, or you can look at it that way. Um, but it, it gives a, a very complicated uh, intellectual and emotional picture of what's going on. Um, so 
Satan is calling to them. He has them um, uh, rise up and, and summons them to him as his army. And we get uh, another epic convention here, uh, the catalog, uh, usually a catalog of soldiers and their great deeds. But here, around line 375, he says, same use their names, then known, who first, who last, roused from the slumber on that fiery couch as their great emperor's call. Uh, so here, who were who the names of the, the chief devils who came to his call? And he calls them by names that they would have later. Uh, so this is not, they, he doesn't really give them names, he gives them the names that men gave them later. And all of these, this list of about, I think it's ten uh, uh, devils that he mentions, are all gods in the old world of the Middle, East, Middle Eastern religions. So the idea is that these are these devils were worshipped by men as gods uh, later on, uh, and he lists them starting around line one ninety. There's Moloch, uh, there's uh, Chemos, uh, and on around line four twenty there's Balaam and Ashtaroth, and all of these are, are you know from Babylon, from uh, from Palestine, from Egypt. Uh, these that region of the world are where all these gods come from. Now, notice uh, he says there around line 423, uh, there's uh, Balaam and Ashtaroth. Now, Ashtaroth is feminine. He says, those male, these feminine. For spirits, when they please, can either sex assume, or both. So soft and uncompounded is their essence pure, not tied or manacled with joint or limb, nor founded on the brittle strength of bones like cumbrous flesh, but in what shapes they choose, dilated or condensed, bright or obscure, can execute their airy purposes, and works of love or enmity fulfill. So here, and we'll see this develops throughout uh, Milton's kind of, of cosmology of the angels. They're, they are spirits, and so they don't have a fixed form. They can be male or female or both. Uh, they they don't they're not physical bodies so they can change their shape they can dilate they can get small they can in, in, enlarge they can condense uh, as we see them do at the end of the book one uh, they have this kind of elastic property that they they can transform into anything they want to so anyway it goes on and it talks about these various uh, ones uh, again Egyptian gods Osiris Iris Horus uh, Belial uh, now, all of these are not only pagan gods, but pagan gods that were worshipped instead of Jehovah, instead of God in the Old Testament. So they have supplanted the, the true religion. And the last one he, he talks about is Belial. And he, this is line uh, 490, uh, Belial came last, than whom a spirit more lewd fell not from heaven, or more gross to love, vice for itself. To him no temple stood, or altar smoked, yet who more oft than he in temples and at altars, when the priest turns atheist, as did Eli's sons. So this is a, a, a god who doesn't, a devil who doesn't have a temple to himself, but he tempts people who believe to be atheists. So that's the kind of the, the worst of these uh, uh, devil gods that are uh, in the catalog here. 
And again, the catalog is a, a feature of classical literature, but Milton has taken it and used it uh, in, a, uh, in a biblical context. And look around line 570 when all of the angels have come up in formation and the, the, all their spears and they're, they're in their ranks. It says, and now his heart distends with pride and hardening in, in his strength glories. For never since created man met such embodied force as named with these could merit more than that small infantry warred on by cranes, though all the giant brood of Felagra with the heroic race were joined, that fought at Thebes and Ilium on each side, mixed with the auxiliar gods, and what resounds in fable or romance of Uther's son, begirt with British and Amoric knights. So now he's talking about this is this was the best army, better than the, those that sparred at Il- Ilium, that's the Troy, that's the Trojan War, or Uther's son, King Arthur, the Arthurian knights. This is or Charlemagne, any human army. This surpasses them all. And uh, line uh, five ninety, his form had yet not lost all her original brightness, nor appeared less. An archangel ruined. So we've got he still Satan again still has some of that the the brightness and glory of his unfallen state here, and he's address uh, you know he speak, steps up to address the troops around line six twenty says thrice he essayed, and thrice in spite of scorn tears such as angels weep burst forth, at last. Words interwove with sighs found out their way. So he's overcome with emotion. He's crying. And again, this seems like a, a kind of an epic, poignant moment. Uh, Milton is not presenting Satan as, a, as an overt villain here. Um, and look in his speech. He talks about their war with God around line 640. But he who reigns, monarch in heaven, till then as one secure, sat on his throne, upheld by old repute, consent, or custom, and his regal state put forth at full, but still his strength concealed, which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall. So now look what he's saying here, that God was on the throne. Why was he there? Upheld by old repute, consent, or custom. So, oh, you know, it's just that, you know, that's just the way everything had been done. Old repute, custom, that, you know, we didn't change it because that's the way it had already has been. And But he concealed his strength, which tempted our attempt. You know, if we had known how strong he was, we wouldn't have rebelled against him. It was really God's fault. Um, he says, henceforth his might we know and know our own, so as not either to provoke or dread new war provoked. Our better part remains to work in close design by fraud or guile, what force effected not, that he no less at length from us may find who overcomes but by force hath overcome but half his foe. So he's saying, well, we, could, we, we can't win in a direct military confrontation with him, but we can, we can have a guerrilla war. We can have a terrorist campaign. We're going to get him back somehow. Again, you may have overcome us by force, but that's only half the battle. Our spirits still endure. 
again, there's something really stirring about the things that uh, Satan is saying, even though you know he's he's the bad guy. Look around line uh, 657. This infernal pit shall never hold celestial spirits in bondage, nor the abyss long under darkness cover. But these thoughts full counsel must mature. Peace is despaired, for who can think submission? War, then, war, open or understood, must be resolved. So he says, you, you know, no jail can hold us, but we, we have to have a council to figure out how we're going to do the war. Will it be open or will it be covert? Um, and they, they're coming, you know, highly they raged against the highest. Um, and then they build pandemonium. This is the, the, the palace of the, the devils in hell. And Mammon is the one who, who leads them, line uh, 680. Uh, Mammon led them on, Mammon, the least directed spirit that fell from heaven. For even in heaven, his looks and thoughts were always downward bent, admiring more the riches of heaven's pavement, trodden gold, than aught divine or holy else enjoyed in vision beatific. So Mammon is the is often the, the you know the spirit of greed, uh, and here he is you know he's he's about gold he's about making things but he doesn't have higher spiritual ideas, and notice where they get all the materials for building the palace, uh, line uh, six eighty seven, soon had his crew opened into the hill a spacious wound and digged out ribs of gold. Uh, now that. Reference should be interesting if you think about the creation of Eve that will happen later on. It says, Let none admire that riches grow in hell. That soil may best deserve the precious bane. It says, You know, don't get all excited. Yes, they have gold in hell. That's, that doesn't make it a good place. Um, they, they've digged out the earth and gotten all of the materials that they'll need to, uh, to build this mighty palace. Now, if you look in your handouts, uh, on the website, you'll see that I have a section of the poem from uh, line 738 to line 751. And I want to go through this. This is the original passage that Milton wrote and two uh, translations of it. This is describing the the architect uh, of, of hell and how he was thought of in Greek mythology. Nor was his name unheard or unadored in ancient Greece, and in Osonian land men called him Mulciber, and how he fell from heaven they fabled, thrown by angry Jove, sheer o'er the crystal battlements. From morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day, and with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Limnus, the Aegean Isle. Thus they relate, erring. For he, with this rebellious rout, fell long before, nor aught availed him now to have built in heaven high towers, nor did he scape by all his engines, but was headlong sent with his industrious crew to build in hell. So here... Milton is invoking the classical reference of Mulciber or um, or Vulcan or Hephaestus, the the god of the smith god, and the story in classical mythology is that he was Zeus 
cast him off of, threw him off of Olympus. He got mad at him, and he fell on the, an island and, and was crippled. He, he walked, uh, uh, Milton doesn't mention that part of the story, but he, he was uh, crippled because of that. And he says, it's this beautiful kind of lyric poetry he uses to describe it. He says, that's what they say about him, erring. They were completely wrong. He was one of this rebellious route. I want to look at the two alternate versions of this. The first one is from the 18th century, uh, 1756. It was, uh, and they had great long titles of books back then. This is a new version of The Paradise Lost, or Milton paraphrased, in which the measure and versification are corrected and harmonized. So uh, George Smith Green, who wrote this, wanted Milton to be have a more regular meter. Uh, actually, Milton has fairly regular meter, but he, he thought it could be improved. So let's read his improved version. In Greece long since, and in Ausonian land, men called him Mulciber, the god of fire, and fabled that he fell from heaven's high battlements, thrown down by Jove for his enormous make. From morn to noon, from noon to night he fell, a summer's day before he reached the earth, and falling upon Limnos broke his leg, and limping walked a cripple ever after. Thus they relate, but erring, for he fell with this rebellious rout long time before. His wickedness beyond his art prevailing, his heaven-built palaces availed him not, for he and all his crew were headlong sent to try their structure-raising skill in hell." All right. Now, I want you to think about what makes Milton's so much better poetry. Uh, One simple thing is look at the way that Milton uses the line ending. Uh, You know, thus they relate erring. So the erring has a real force because it comes at the first of a line. But, uh, you know, Green's version, it puts it right in the middle of a line. There's no special emphasis for that. Uh, Or look at the way they describe the the fall uh, of of Mulciber. Milton says, from morn, and this is an enjambment, from morn, enjambment, to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day. Now, Green has that, from morn to noon, from noon to night he fell. Okay, well, we've lost dewy eve, and because we don't have the enjambments, it doesn't have the, those those just slight pauses that make it actually seem like a longer fall. Um, it's not using the 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 lines and the language in a, in nearly as effective a way. Um, and he adds all this stuff about limping Walker Cripple ever after. Well, that has nothing to do with Milton's story. That's not the, the story. This is about a, a, this beautiful fall, and everybody thinks it's so romantic and beautiful. Sure, or the crystal battlements. Um, notice there are no crystal battlements in Green's version. It's heaven's high battlements. Uh, he, he loses so much of the poetry by changing the just changing the word order around and losing some of the adjectives, uh, or look at the um, this is a 2008 version, Paradise Lost, the novel. This is a prose uh, paraphrase of Milton. His name was known in ancient Greece and Italy. Men called him Vulcan, the softener of metal and related in fable how, thrown from heaven by angry Jove, from morn to noon to summer's eve, he dropped from the zenith like a falling star on the Aegean isle of Limnos. 
So they told the story, erringly, for he with this rebellious company fell long before. His high towers built in heaven did not save him, nor his forged machines of war. Along with his industrious crew, he was sent headlong to build in hell. Now again, you're losing a lot of the poetry here, right? Um, first of all, notice that both versions tell you who Mulsilber is. Milton doesn't. You know, one of them says the god of fire. He calls him Vulcan, the softener of metal. Uh, Milton lets you figure that out for himself. Even if you didn't know who the, the name Mulsiber, the story is going to inform it. It should tell you who he was. Uh, Milton trusts his audience and his readers a lot more than his translators do here. Um, or look at uh, uh, where he says, you know, again, from morn to noon to summer's eve, he dropped from the zenith like a falling star. Again, that compresses the way Milton tells it. It's from morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day. And with the setting sun, dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Limnus, the Aegean Isle. Again, if you think about the, the rhythm that the uh, enjambments create there, uh, it, it's a much more fluid uh, language than is in either of these translations. Um, again, so they told the story erringly. Erringly? I mean, uh, man, how, how bad can you get? Um, or even something as simple with this rebellious company instead of with this rebellious route. Just the alliteration, rebellious route, fell long before. Um, and you can look at, you know, you, you know I, I invite you to look at some more details of, of what they've changed and how it changes it. Um, the, uh, the power of Milton's language uh, really shines out when you see it kind of translated in this uh, very ham-fisted way. Uh, and, you know, we could, I could spend, you know, the whole class look, just looking at the, those kinds of details, but uh, for better or worse, I'm not going to. I do want to look at one last uh, epic simile in the poem. This is describing how the, the mass of the, uh, the fallen angels uh, shrink down so they can all fit into the palace in pandemonium. Uh, this is around line 780. Uh, they, but now, who seemed in bigness to surpass Earth's giant sons, now less than smallest dwarves in narrow room thronged numberless, like that Pygmaean race beyond the Indian mount. So again, a double simile. So like pygmies in, uh, in, in India. Or fairy elves whose midnight revels by a forest side or fountain some belated peasant sees, or dreams he sees, while overhead the moon sits arbitress and nearer to the earth wheels her pale course. They, on their mirth and dance intent with jocund music, charm his ear at once with joy and fear his heart rebounds." So again, like the Leviathan image, this one starts with just a kind of a simple comparison. He was tiny, like they were tiny, like pygmies. They were tiny, like the fairy elves. But then we get a whole story. What do the elves do? Well, they enchant someone. 
this is a classic fairy tale. You go out into the forest and the, the elves are dancing in, in a ring and you hear their music and you go to find them and usually something terrible happens to you when you get there or at least something strange and dangerous. Um, they on their mirth and dance intent with jocund music charm his ear. Um, he says, and with joy and fear his heart rebounds. So both joy and fear. And I think with, with this and with the Leviathan simile, you can see that Milton is very aware that the, the fallen angels are dangerous because they're tempting. Part of the reason that he, I think he gives Satan such a heroic image here um, is because that's how Satan works. You know, if you knew he was evil, uh, it wouldn't be as tempting. But because he has this, again, outward form that is heroic and grand and, and powerful, that is attractive in the same way that the fairies kind of uh, uh, trick the uh, the traveler or the way that the Leviathan seems like it's a, a safe island, a safe harbor, uh, and so you drop anchor there. Uh, Milton is warning you not to take things at face value. Um, and again, in just beautiful language. Um, all right, well, we'll stop there with book one. Um, for book two, there are a couple of things I want you to think about. Book two starts out with the debate in hell, and you'll see that there are several speakers who come forward and give their cases. I want you to think, what cases do they give? What do they, what do they say about this question of how to wage war with God? And think about who you agree with, who has the best arguments here, and think about who wins the argument and why. Uh, then the second half of book two will be Satan's journey out of hell, and he will meet uh, a couple of characters, sin and death. And I want you to think about how they are presented, what they what they look like, and how they are related to each other and to Satan. Uh, we'll see how all of that works in book two. So, um, oh, another thing, the uh, original publication of Paradise Lost had before each book an, an, an argument is what they're called. It's basically a summary of the what happens in that book. Uh, now, the Norton Anthology gives you the argument for book one, but it doesn't include any of the other ones. But I have generously included them all for you on the, the handouts page of the website. So you can look there and read those, and they're actually very useful. They can kind of give you a little summary to orient yourself and then reread after you've read the book, and uh, it can help you uh, follow the, the story much more clearly. And they're written by Milton, so you know they're not, they're not, uh, they, they've got the authorial stamp of approval there. Uh, so feel free to use those as you're reading and preparing your study of Book 2 of Paradise Lost. Uh, should you have questions about that, uh, the email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. I thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.